Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline won't be able to join us today, but check in in a week or two and she'll be back. Um, our guest today is Kelly Sather. Kelly is a writer, <laughs> former entertainment lawyer, and screenwriter. Her stories and reviews have appeared in Santa Monica Review, J Journal, Pembroke Magazine, and elsewhere. She grew up in Los Angeles, lives in Northern California, and the book that we're talking about today is a collection of short stories called Small in Real Life, which is the winner of the Drew Hines Literature Prize, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Kelly. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, former entertainment lawyer, screenwriter, which came first? That's a good question. So the lawyer part came first. I um, I was working at a studio and got, I think I had always wanted to write. I mean, I know I had always wanted to write, but when I was, um, when I was working as a lawyer, I had a chance to work for a studio for a while. I was at Columbia Pictures and it was great because I was a production lawyer and involved in um, getting films going and then, uh, being there while they were being, uh, while they were being filmed. So I became just really interested in, in writing screenplays and, um, and that's kind of where I started. And did you have any produced? You know, I have not. I've had some in development, and I've gotten close, but I, I have not had one on the screen yet. It yeah. is really a rare thing to get a screenplay produced, isn't it? In a, in a way, surprisingly, it is. Yeah. It is, yes. And I and I understand that because films are very expensive and they're very collaborative, and so it just you know they sort of they, that's where they start is with the screenplay, and so it's a you know, it's a generative time for a film process and some of them go through and some of them just, you know. And of course, there's only so many movies made per year, like a fraction of the number of movies made as books published, you know, a tiny fraction. Yeah, that's true. And probably quite a lot of people who, who love writing scripts. So... I think your your odds are <laughs> the odds are not in your favor. Is that one of the reasons that you switched to writing short stories? You know, I actually always wanted to write short stories. When I was working as a lawyer, I started taking classes at night at UCLA. They have a great uh, UCLA extension program with some really wonderful teachers. And so I was taking a class in short stories and in screenwriting. And I realized in terms of income, (laughs) I had opportunities because I knew some producers from working in the business who wanted, you know, to work with me on some projects. And so it was sort of an easy way to, uh, you know, take that sidestep there. And also, I think at the time, stories were more difficult for me. And there was something about, even though screenplays are not easy in any way, there's something about like the white space around a script that I felt like, oh, I can, I can do dialogue. Like I can go into that place and, and, and shape scenes and think of them that way. It was, it was almost like I wasn't quite ready to go into stories. Um, and so that's, that's where I was for a while. And then um, when my youngest son went to school, I thought, oh, I really want to write stories. Like I just had that as a passion. And so I, again, which I, I love, especially now, there's so many great classes offered online and I needed that. Like it, to work on my own was going to be it was just sort of too quiet. You know, I needed some feedback and just some form to what I was going to try and do. And so I, um, at the time, you know, was living in Northern California. And so I drove into San Francisco and I started taking a class there. And then I just kind of kept going um, and went back to school and uh, and just kept writing stories. Like I, once, I, once I got going, I was hooked. Wow. Now, why short stories of, rather than novels? 
So that is also a good question, especially since in the book business, everyone wants to hear about novels. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is so wonderful that um, Pittsburgh Press has it, – it's an endowed prize by Drew Hines, which is really wonderful because it supports these short stories that um, can be hard to, you know, put into a collection and get published. So I feel really fortunate and grateful. Um and for me at the time, I couldn't hold a novel. Like, I, I just didn't know how to hold, like, that much space. It felt, like, too big and almost vacant in a way. And the short story had this, the size of it felt manageable, and I could do it in short pieces, which was sort of the time that I had then. And then the other part of it was I was really fascinated with how much you could do in a small space and the demands, in a way, of the form. Um, I often hear poets talk about this, and I, I didn't really understand it, but now sometimes having a limitation is a spark for creativity. And for me, I was always thinking, okay, what can a sentence do? Like, how can a sentence do more than just say one thing or convey more than one thing? Um, there's a writer who I love, um, Amy Hempel, and she talks about another writer called Mary Robeson, who I also um, really read a lot when I was working on these stories because I like her brevity and sort of the power of her scenes and the conflict between characters. Um and Amy Hempel was noting that, you know, she can include a sentence like, my mother, I resented my mother for buying a car that my father would never have fit in. And it, it seemed, and you're sort of hearing something about the narrator, you're hearing something about the relationship between the narrator and her mother, her mother and her father, the narrator and her father. So it's sort of like this whole play is going on. <laughs> And uh, I like that. Like, I liked that sort of that activity of of the story that you're that you're really working with. Well, there definitely was a time when writers started out writing short stories. They they it wasn't really I don't think considered very common to just jump into a novel. Talk about Hemingway. Fitzgerald, you know, that era of writers, they all wrote short stories and they could make a living, not always a very good one, but they could make money writing short stories because there were periodicals that focused on short stories and, and paid, paid their writers. And even, I'd say even into the seventies and eighties, there were a number of good places that actually paid to get short stories. There was the women's magazines, Red Book, always had good short stories in it. Um, Playboy was like the cream of the crop in terms of what they paid for fiction. And um, and now we don't really, we have very small journals for the most part. You know, how does a short story writer really break through now? I think that's true, and I think um, I think the answer is they have other work. You know, they teach, or or they you know they do it's a it's a passion that that you do on the side because or or like you say it becomes a stepping stone into the novel. Right. Um, right. I think now for writers in general, I was um, I was hearing once that sort of overall like we hear about the books that sell incredibly well. But I think, I think income for writers is of fiction. If you're writing novels and that sort of thing is around, I think, I think I heard like $20,000 a year. So it's not, it's, it's a difficult, I think, I think overall it's a difficult um, way to make a living. Um, play, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a difficult way to make a living. So it really becomes um, more of, I mean, I'm so excited when I hear about, books that sell so well and, you know, that people can um, make, make a living from that. that that's fantastic. Um, and I also think, though, that the other aspects of writing, like being in community and having a chance to teach and, um, you know, work in other ways, I think also informs writing. So it sort of becomes, um, it becomes a larger and enriching project 
And I also think, yes, it would be lovely to live in the 70s with, you know, Raymond Carver and John Cheever, who could make money from their stories in the New Yorker. I mean, yes. assuming one yes. could get a story in the New, in Yorker, the New Yorker, which yes. is another, yeah. Yeah. another part. But, um, yes, yeah, so, so times have changed. And at the same time, though, there are a lot of wonderful journals that publish stories for, you know, for readers and writers to to find. And so in that way there's a lot, there's been a lot of growth. That's true. That's true. And a lot of them are university presses. Mm -hmm. A lot of, there's a lot of university presses that publish um, journals with short stories. Um, And of course that is, you're published with the university press, university of Pittsburgh press. Tell us a little bit about this Drew Hines literature prize. And how you, you know, how'd you hear about it? How'd you apply for it? What did it, what was the process like? So it is, um, there's a few prizes for short stories that are offered by um, university presses. And this is, you know, kind of one of the well-known ones. So when I decided to put together my stories in a collection, I I put together an agent letter and I was going to, um, I was going to go out with it. And, and I just thought, you know, it's really better to have a novel when you're going into the agent process. And when I was a screenwriter, I had an agent. And so I've sort of been in that space, which is really, I was, you know, very grateful for it, but I knew at this point that a lot of it just depended on doing the work and like having a chance to write and get, you know, and have my stories be as strong as they could be. So I was really focused on that. And then I think really what happens is I heard about them from other friends, like a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine won a different short story prize with a different press. And I thought, oh, you know, that's another way to try. Like before I go out through the agent process and sort of start that, um, you know, it takes a thick skin to kind of go in and, and do all the research and find who you want to set, who you want to send it to, which is exciting too to to think about your career in that way. But I decided to try um, and submit the manuscript to the Drew Hines, and it was really interesting because Disha Filia um, was the judge for for the year that I submitted. And I had heard an, an interview, a podcast interview with her, and she had a wonderful collection of short stories called The Secret Lives of Church Ladies um, that won so many awards and was published by, um, I think it was West Virginia Press, so another academic press. And then she ended up being the person who selected my manuscript, which is so exciting, like to have that sort of, it felt like... Um, I felt like I was following like a line of intuition in some way. <laughs> um, so, right. So I, so I got the manuscript together and, um, and wrote the notes and, and sent it in and then kind of, I didn't forget about it, but I was more focused on where I was going to submit next because what I have learned from, from submitting my stories to, to journals is that there's a lot of no's and part of, part of experiencing the nose is continuing to submit, like continuing to have that next opportunity potential. And so I was a little more in that area. Like I'm still hopeful, but I didn't really know. And when I got the call, it was, or I, it feels like a call, but it was an email. <laughs> and when I got the email, it was so exciting. I mean, it was just, it feels surreal. It really, it really is. I feel very lucky. Um, takes a lot of work and also very fortunate that, you know, that I, that the manuscript was selected. So. Now you had your book launch this week that we're recording, right? So October 3rd. Yes. How did yes. that go? Yes. Well, you might hear my voice is a little gravelly <laughs> um, because I've been doing a couple of events, which has been so fantastic. I um, I've had some friends who have um, who have launched books before, and they told me to drink a lot of water. <laughs> so I have been doing that, and that's been that's for sure been helpful. So it was wonderful. I um, was at a I'm in California right now, and I um, 
had the chance to be at Diesel Books in Los Angeles for the book launch, which felt very, um, very much in line with Small in Real Life since it's uh, since it takes place in Southern California mainly. And it was great. Um, some of my friends came out and um, we were actually outside. Uh, the fall is so pretty here. And so we sat outside under the lights and talked about the book. Um, so it was, it was great. And then last night, uh, some friends had a, a book party for me. So that was another chance to, to talk about Small in Real Life. And looking at your website, which is uh, com. S-A-T-H-E-R. Uh, you've got an event tonight, too, at Mrs. Dalloway's Bookstore. In Berkeley. In yes. Berkeley, so that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's closer to home. Mrs. Dalloway's is a pretty magical place, too, because um, there's a Virginia Woolf theme there that uh, is really wonderful. And, um, yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that tonight. And I'll be talking to uh, a novelist, Yale Goldstein Love. So. Oh, fantastic. That would be fun. So this is, um, is this your first published book? Yes. Yes. But you have published in magazines and journals and different places. Were all of the stories that are in this collection previously published? No. Um, I think about um, half a dozen of them were. Um, it's, it's interesting because to draw interest for a manuscript for a collection of stories, it's very helpful to have published several of them in literary journals. Mm-hmm. And and so and then when I put the manuscript together, I did do some editing. So it's so they're most you know, so they're in a slightly different slightly different form. But um but that process I think of submitting to literary journals and having those relationships with editors getting your story ready for their, you know, for their, um, for their journals and issues is a good process. It's a good stepping stone to then getting to the place of putting, putting a collection of stories together. And there's, there's nine stories in the collection. How did you decide, you know, I'm, I'm imagining you have more than nine stories to choose from in yes. creating this collection, how do you decide what fits and what goes together? So that's a very good question. <laughs> and I think my answer is it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit intuition and it's a little bit, okay, how do these fit together? Um, I was writing mainly about California. And so they were, the stories that I have are, are similar in setting in that way. So that, you know, they, there could be more in this collection. And there was one story that I was working on for a long time thinking that it was meant to be a part of it. And I just realized, oh, it's not. Like, I can't really describe the understanding of that other than it just felt like it was, I kept trying to make it fit and trying to make <laughs> it, um, to, I mean, it's it's my writing, so it's similar, but it felt that it was like a different direction and had a different energy. And I thought, oh, it doesn't like it's these stories. These are the nine stories. And I spent a lot of time thinking about the order of them, too, which was part of understanding what would be included. And I would think I would list out, okay, these are the stories with male characters and these are the stories with female characters and these are the stories, uh, you know, of, you know, teenagers and, you know, adults and how does this all map together? And then I tried different things. And then ultimately when I decided the order of the stories, it was sort of like I didn't even think about it. And I, and I thought, Oh, I'll probably have a chance to change the order if I want to, after I submit, which I think writers are always that way. Like (laughs) it always feels easier if you know, you're going to have an out, right? Like if you know, Oh, this, I can always edit this later. I can always change this. And so I think that also um, gave me confidence in the, what felt a little bit random, but now I see works so well. Um, when I, when I chose the order that the stories are in right now. Wow. So you, like you said, they're, they're all set in California and yes. what else sort of is a common element? Well, I think the other common element is 
there's um, there's a need for belonging and a movement towards that and choices towards that 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 get characters into trouble instead of getting them where they're hopeful. Like there's a lack that they feel and there's some connection that they're wanting, but they go about it in ways that uh, don't work out well for them, I will say. <laughs> or I, I, I'm not going to let I'm not going to give everything away, but, but the conflict, like I, I just was always writing into conflict. And I think there's an aspect of um, Southern California of wanting um, fame or some sort of notice that as if that is going to make one feel um, whole. And so I, I, I look at that pretty um, carefully mm. and whether that is, how that works for us and doesn't work. So, I mean, in some ways there, I think the stories are all a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been told this before? <laughs> you know, I think, I think they are, I, I try to, yes, in the sense that someone said they're sad, but there's also these glimmers uh, or glimpses of connection, I think, um, and loss. Yes, there's loss, but I think also they're funny. And so I think in some of the humor I have in it, it is allows that space to feel like, yeah, this is kind of how life is. You know, this is kind of like it's it's hard at times and there's, um, you know, there's a, there's a humor in our bumping into each other and our <laughs> competition <laughs> with one another and our, you know, desire for something from one another that we, that we, for whatever reason, can't seem to, you know, receive. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I, I kind of misspoke because they aren't really all set in California. Like Venice obviously is set in yes. Venice. So yeah. what's the, like, why did that fit in? So that story is set in Venice and it's a family from Southern California. Okay. So while they are in Italy, um, they are there. I use their travel in the place that they are as a way for them to, be be in a place that is gonna um, sort of challenge the way that they're trying to be. Um, I don't know what the word is, but um, it gives them a it gives them a space to um, to kind of make mistakes actually, and and see what the fallout is from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also the the main character is. Um, is Caroline and she is very much using the things that she's learned growing up in California as a way to attract attention and be important in, you know, in another place. And she's um, finding new success with that. And so that becomes, um, she kind of invents herself in a new way while she's on this trip with her family. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Kelly Sather, author of Small in Real Life, which is a collection of short stories. And, you know, they're they're nice length stories, I feel, you know, that you can sit down and read one in a, in a pretty short time and really get in, but really get into it. So it, they're, they're long enough to have some resolution, which some short stories don't. Um, but short enough to uh, to take a you know one at a time and and have fun with. So um, why don't you read from the beginning of one of the stories for us? Great, I will read from the beginning of the first story called "The Spaniard." Two days before Jenny's sixteenth birthday, she got sick at school. They couldn't reach her mother so they gave her bus fare and sent her home on the RTD. She had chills and her head hurt, but she wasn't throwing up. We don't want those germs around here, the school secretary had said. 
It wasn't unusual to send a sick kid out the school gates with a dollar fifty in her pocket. On the bus, Jenny leaned her head against the tinted brown glass. Los Angeles, April 1984. Palm trees and cement drifted past her window. She thought about her bed, her comforter with pink roses. She felt its soft, quilted cotton press against her cheek. When Jenny got home, her mother's Volvo was parked in the driveway. No one answered the doorbell. She walked around the house, through the gate, to the backyard. She slid the pot of her mother's white petunias and picked up the key hidden underneath. So when she tried the back door, she found it unlocked. She walked through the laundry room, down a narrow hall toward the kitchen, where she would get a glass of water on the way to her bedroom. Suddenly, in the middle of the silent house, she heard a girlish twitter, unfamiliar, yet she knew it was her mother's voice. Her mother must be on the phone. But in the kitchen, her mother faced the miniature espresso machine, watching coffee drip into a tiny cup. She wore a wasteless baby doll dress that showed off her tennis legs, pink satin with white laced edges. A dark-haired man with glowing olive skin sat at the kitchen table, smoking a cigarette, plate of ashes by his right hand. He nodded at Jenny like she was a fellow patron at the coffee shop looking for a table and cleared his throat. A foreigner in a foreign land, Jenny thought. And then, as two streams of gray whisk blew out the man's polished nose, smoking kills. Her mother nearly dropped the little cup on her way to serve it. What are you doing here? She said. I'm sick. Oh, her mother looked her over. Jenny wondered if she looked sick. She slumped her shoulders forward. This is my friend, Federico, her mother said. Jenny turned to the olive-skinned man. Hello, Federico. He bowed his shiny black head toward her. It is a pleasure to meet you. I did not know that Celia's daughter has the same fire eyes. His accent leaned on the sea and Celia, so it sounded like Celia. Jenny's eyes were brown like her father's, Celia's hazel. Federico brought the tiny cup to his lips and drank his espresso in one swig. And now, he said, as if he were a magician about to conjure a rabbit from the pocket of his sleek trousers, I must leave you, beautiful ladies. His teeth were pure white. Federico paused in the doorway and raised his hand in a flat palm wave. Then the front door thudded shut. Celia stood flushed and preening in the middle of a yellow-tiled kitchen. Jenny pulled a glass from the cupboard and held its wide mouth under the tap. I want a car for my birthday, or I'm telling Dad. Thought I'd stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so when you sit down to write, do you start with a character? Do you start with a kind of an idea of an, of a plot or where, where do you, or is it different with every story? I think in some ways it's different with other stories, but I will say that something that is consistent is that I feel a conflict between two people in some way that I've either, um, I mean, some of the stories are adjacent to experiences I've had. Like, they aren't exactly experiences, but they're sort of like a glimpse or a moment where I think, oh, what if it went this way? And I, and I follow a darker thread, and I don't really know where the story is going to go. Like, I don't – I mean, I have a sense of the mood, and so I think in ways the mood shapes what's possible to happen for these characters – but I'm very much discovering them as I'm writing. I, When I started out, I used to talk about characters as if I was trying to coax my characters out of a dark room. <laughs> like I'm just <laughs> trying to bring them like further into the light. And in some ways, 
each sentence is that light. Like it just brings a little bit more um, and it brings both me more into the story as the characters coming forward. Um, so I very much write like from sentence to sentence, but that said, I don't try and make every sentence. Um, there's some writers that really say, okay, this sentence I want to feel is as good as I can get it before I get to the next one. I try and write for my first draft, not fast, but just keep moving um, and not worry necessarily about whether this is good enough or whether I picked the right word because I sort of just want the momentum of the possibility of what could happen next. And and then I have other stories that have started um, from overhearing conversations and Sometimes I think I feel a little complicit when I'm over when I'm listening to a conversation, and so um, the mood then becomes a little bit um, not necessarily darker, but I think you know aware of this tension of um, exposure. I think I would say, yeah. So, like sitting in a coffee shop and hearing the people at the next table, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, um, overhearing a conversation. I know. I, I and I have heard <laughs> wonderful things at, at coffee shops, but I, I think more. I, there was one thing I heard at a at a um, at a hair salon, which is funny because um, Eudora Welty, I think, has a has a wonderful story that happens in a hair salon. Um, and so, so one of the stories, handbag parade, was somewhat informed by that. It was like the it, that was the little piece that I kind of ran with. I didn't, I'm also very aware of not, um, when I, when I sort of pick up on things, I very much infuse them with my own, um, experience or ideas or something like that. Like it's not something, Oh, I heard this and now I want it down and make a story out of it. Um, so I, I, I sort of it's there's this story about uh when when you get into all these this sort of short story lore um there's a story about Raymond Carver and John Cheever like driving through Iowa somewhere actually yeah in Iowa and seeing a whole house like a whole someone's entire living room out on their front lawn like their couches their lamps like the whole thing and uh and Raymond Carver said mine you know he's like i'm taking that i'm gonna run with that and he does have a story like that you know he said i'm gonna take that because that's very rich material um so i i think as writers we're always uh we started out as observers and i mean i think everybody's observing all the time but there's something to these observations that we want to play with on the page um there's another story actually harmony that i um that i started I went to get, as all of us do sometimes, I went to get a lab test and, uh, and I, there was a, it was really crowded and I couldn't understand why it was so crowded. And then I was listening to this conversation. It was, um, people that were in a recovery program for addiction and they must've come for, you know, a weekly blood test or something like that. And it was lovely to hear them try and navigate each other. Like they were, they, I think they had all, they were all fairly new and they were both like, trying to connect and then also a little bit compete. And so that was, that was an interesting place to kind of think about in that story. <laughs> I wrote that scene and then it didn't end up working in the story. Like the story took off in this entirely different direction um, with a paparazzo and, um, and, a, and an actor. And, you know, none of those parts were in that moment um, of that conversation that I had observed, but it sparked something in me and I ran with it. You're listening to Writer's Voices and our guest today is Kelly Sather, author of Small in Real Life, winner of the Drew Hines Literature Prize. I don't know why I'm so tongue-tied this morning. Mm-hmm. And um, we're talking about, you know, the the short stories in this book. And, you know, every single one of them we could probably spend a whole hour delving into Um you know, what, where did this come from? Where, where, what was the seed of the idea for this one? How long do you actually, does it take you to write a story? And do you work on more than one at a time? That is a very good question. And I am not 
sure in terms of like time, like, like, oh, well, I was working on this for, you know, this many years or whatever it was. But I think a lot in terms of drafts. And so I think overall, I think I started these stories in around 2013, like the very early drafts of them. And um, some of them I wrote much more recently. And one story I probably was working on for a really long time, like, you know, for five or six years. And I used to hear people say, writers talk about, you know, setting a project in the drawer and then going back to it. And I would get really kind of uncomfortable with that because I just didn't want to think that some that you could spend a lot of time working on something and then have to really set it aside. Like I, there was a part of me that just wanted to be in the project and then finish it, you know, just start and like Mm -hmm. exist in that space and then finish it. But what I found is that being able to move between um, between stories or between projects brings more energy to each of them. And so if I were just going to stay with one piece and one, um, you know, group of characters and just keep <laughs> kind of keep at them or stay with them, um, that didn't necessarily help the story that didn't. And, and so then I sort of learned to like, Oh, I'll shift. I'll work on this one, you know, today or, you know, for this amount of time and then I'll turn to this story and that was very and, and maybe that's also how a collection comes together because they they start to inform one another um, uh, as you're working on them yeah I just thought of that actually sure well how do you know when a story is done when it's finished so readers help um, <laughs> I have some friends who are writers and we read each other's work and they, um, and they, uh, you know, they'll know my writing and they'll say, oh, this, like, I could feel it. Like, I could feel that this is where, you know, you know, this one feels done or ready or whatever, however, however we describe that. Um, and then if the feeling is, gosh, you know, I'm, I can see how this character is going through these things, but I don't really um, I don't, it just feels like there's more, it feels like something's missing. I mean, it's, it's a lot of just almost like a sensation. Um, and then I'll look and see what could be brought forward and what could be, and, and some of it's so simple is just, um, I tend to write in close thirds. So I'm very, um, coming, I'm not, I'm very, I'm very much in a point of view and sometimes it's, bringing forward the character that they're interacting with and like just bringing their gestures forward a little bit so that there's some um, uncertainty about what they're really thinking. Um, And that adds dimension and then um, kind of helps the story land where it might not have been um, resonating before. Now the title of the collection, Small in Real Life is also the title of one of the stories. And it is a, a phrase that, um, those of us who don't have much, uh, maybe a lot of connection with Hollywood, uh, know, you know, that there's this idea yeah. that a lot of actors are really small in real life. Mm-hmm. And first of all, did do you find that to be true? <laughs> well, okay. So I will tell you something about me. I am tall and six one, so <laughs> so I'm I'm so they're from, all small to you, <laughs> right? Exactly. So my perspective is skewed. I will say that right now, my perspective is skewed. So I was more talking about, um, which is, I mean, this is kind of interesting when you talk about um, actors and their their sort of natural charisma, and I think that. Um, I think that they, in many ways, are not small. Having, you know, lived in a place where you end up, you know, seeing actors sometimes. I mean, I've I've just been here for a couple of days and I've seen two actors, which is funny, and not looking for them, you know, just sort of out in the world, um, which I love because I, yeah, I think of actors yeah. as these creatives and it's pretty cool to be in a place where, you know, people are living and, and doing that work. And uh, yeah, now, my, now my daughter, strike. Uh, okay. yeah. my daughter was living in Beverly Hills for a number of years. And one time I was out visiting and we're driving down the highway and look over the next car. There's Adam Sandler. 
Yeah, right? I know. Right. It's, kind of, it's very funny. And I, I actually wanted to play with that. I do play with that that feeling, which I think even though this is a story um, about Los Angeles and I grew up here, it's very much a story like kind of looking in at it and how all like like I'm kind of exploring that feeling of, you know, driving and seeing Adam Sandler and, and feeling kind of excited and also like maybe a little special, you know, <laughs> sometimes yeah, I see an actor, I I'm like, Ooh, I feel a little special and I don't know how that happens. And I don't know what that feels like for them. You know, I don't, I don't know how that feels when people are sort of, um, you know, getting excited around it, our idea of who they are, right? Like they're, they're whole people in their own, in their own yeah. lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, um, a very good point. <laughs> yeah, so so those are the types of things that I that I'm kind of like looking at and 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 playing with in in the book and in these stories. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's um, it is interesting that this whole idea of celebrity and what it means and why why somebody would want to be that. And I yeah. think a lot of times the people who get it don't really want it. I or think that's maybe true. they thought they did, but in the end they don't. And then and and yet there are still so many people seeking after it. What what is it that draws? <laughs> do you do you have a story that illustrates that best? Do you think? Um, I think the story God's work. Is a, is quietly is quietly looking at that. In um, I think the question that you're asking me, I feel has a lot of compassion in it, right? Like, what is what what is someone feeling that might be lacking in them that might lead them to seek notice so that they would feel better? And um, because I think that is an aspect of celebrity. And then there's the other celebrity, which is there are artists who are doing their work and that ends up leading to um, notice and curiosity and interest. And then they need, they, they get to learn how to navigate that. Um, and, and I think that can be a really hard thing when they have, you know, children and they're just trying to like <laughs> take their kids to school or whatever these things. And they can be um, uh, that can, you know, their, their, their privacy shift. And that's something that they learn, you know, how to figure out. Um, and I don't think that that's easy. Um, but I think like their desire to continue, um, acting in film or, you know, whatever their, their, their work is, um, I don't think is is thwarted by celebrity, but I think that probably they find, um, how to, how to live with it. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of aspects to um, talking about being famous and what that is about, or wanting to be wanting to be known, or thinking or needing to feel special in that way. Yeah. Well, Kelly, why don't you read um, from another one of your stories? I will. I will read from a story called Handbag Parade, and I'm going to just read the opening pages. And bad parade. On Thursday afternoons, Stephanie and Carol visited their friend Gia. They went every Thursday because Gia had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and though they had nothing to do with it, no one did. They felt guilt by proximity. Gia was their friend, and she was dying of a diabolical disease. Gia, Stephanie, and Carol had met in the agency mailroom when they were just out of college and copying scripts on giant machines in the basement. None of them became agents or mothers, but for 20 years they'd kept in touch. Gia lived in a bungalow in West Hollywood. Thank God it's one story, Carol said. Gia used a cane and then a walker, and now the home nurse pushed her around in a wheelchair. And the hallways are wide. Stephanie said. But the wheelchair never bothered Stephanie. What bothered her, as of last month, Gia lost her voice. Her body had silenced her. She was alive inside a frozen woman doll, like a Stephen King horror story in reverse. Talk about torture. But no one talked about it. There was a sister in San Diego who tended to things. Stephanie might have been the friend who drifted away near the end. Or now, if this wasn't the end, 
but she couldn't because of Carol. Carol gave her a spine or turned her spineless. She wasn't sure how to look at it. Stephanie kissed Carol hello on the sidewalk, and Carol turned her left cheek for a kiss, then her right, and her left again, like some European. Carol's husband, Philip, was producing an alien series for sci-fi in Croatia. He'd left seven days ago on a 10 o'clock flight, which Stephanie knew because she dropped him at the airport. Carol thought he'd hired a car. Stephanie waited to feel guilty about Philip, but instead she felt a tinge resentful toward Carol. Gia's bungalow was low to the ground and painted a cream color. A patchwork of pink and white pansies bordered the path through Gia's front yard, where once there had been tufts of wild grasses. Gia's sister was a legal secretary who liked to garden. Over the past months, as Gia declined, she'd recast the modern bungalow with suburban charm. As they headed up the path, Carol passed Stephanie a bag of takeout like she always did, so Stephanie wouldn't arrive empty-handed. Genevieve told me the nurse is from the Philippines. We should ask after her family. They had the hurricane. Genevieve was Gia's sister. The hurricane was in Puerto Rico. Chef Andre is down there feeding starving people rice and beans. I saw a picture in the paper. He wears a fishing vest with 30 pockets to keep organized. In Puerto Rico. Okay, Puerto Rico. Lately, Stephanie considered herself for the people and Carol of them. Carol pushed her black sunglasses higher up her nose. It's not my fault I was born in Orange County. I'll die out and the world can be a better place. You're like pine beetles eating the forests of America and you'll never die out. Maybe that's true, darling, but let's stop the death talk. Carol waved an arm at Gia's house, a stand-in for the dying going on inside. You started it. I'll stop there. Hmm. And that was Kelly Sather reading again from her short story collection, Small in Real Life. Kelly, I understand um, that you have an MFA from Bennington, so I want to ask a little bit about that. But first, I would like you to tell me the story of why you dropped out of pre-med. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is a very funny story. So, um, so I was, um, I in high school loved reading books. That's all I wanted to do. And yet I had a family because I tended to, you know, I was like trying to do well in school. And so I would study for every class and I did well in science and math. And so, um, I had a family who thought it would be a wonderful idea if I would be a doctor. And so I suddenly got to college and I was pre-med, which now I just laugh at, laugh about because <laughs> I think if, you know, I mean, even from this conversation, I, uh, I have, uh, I have a number of friends who are doctors and I, I just don't have, I don't have that skill. Like I actually just worked so hard. And by the time I got to college, it was evident that I was, I was taking chemistry and calculus my first semester. And it was evident that I was just, you know, I couldn't, I could no longer keep my head above water. And um, I remember sitting for an exam in chemistry and it was as if it was in a different language that I had never seen before, a, a completely unknown alphabet even. Um, and then I had, um, I, we part of science classes as you have these labs every week. And, um, and so it was, I think it was the lab final and I was, taking something off, I was taking a beaker off a flame and I was using these tongs that I should not have been using and it slid through and smashed on the ground. And the thing about the lab final is that you <laughs> cannot talk and it's a huge room. And so you're, you're in this room with these bright lights, everything is, you know, very clean and white and you're at these lab tables and you're all wearing goggles. And so this this whatever I was working on, this solution smashed and splattered me. And I just remember, like, I felt like hundreds of people, I'm sure it wasn't, all <laughs> like, you know, because they were all working on their their final and they all, and we had a limited amount of time and they all these goggles like just rose up and looked at me. And then I saw the TA who was wearing a white coat and he had long hair 
and he was running towards me because the first thing you learn when you're in labs is that some of the materials that you're working with, right? You're wearing those goggles for a reason. And I was thought, all I thought is I saw him running towards me as he's going to push me under the shower because there's an emergency shower. And so I thought he's going to push me under the shower in front of everyone. And thank God (laughs) it was not, you know, a dangerous chemical. I mean, luckily they, they obviously wouldn't have us doing that and where we could, you know, but although the shower was there. And so, um, after that I, I played volleyball and I went to, I played volleyball in college and I went to, um, a meeting, uh, and I remember sitting in the coach's office and with my friends from the team. And, you know, when you're a freshman starting out, you're just, you know, first semester, you're just trying to figure out how any, you know, who you are here in this new place. And I remember my coach looking at me and he just said, stay there. You've got to get out of science, you know, because I was still covered <laughs> in the chemical and it was my favorite sweatshirt. And I kept it and I would watch it and, and it, and it develops holes, like whatever it was, like, I felt like it had this afterlife with me and the holes would just get bigger every time I washed it. And, uh, and then after that, I switched (laughs) to English. Yes. It was a pretty, pretty, um, immediate turn. Um, and, and you switched to English according, you know, you've, um, heard Toni Morrison, Yes, that was also part of it. And that that was another moment where I just kind of wandered in to um, the dining hall and they were having an event. Um, you know, they had like a um, sort of like a little um, common room there. And she was reading from the bluest eye and hearing her read um, is so uh, it just was so mesmerizing for me. Um, and that was, I just thought, okay, this is, you know, I could feel like that my heart just kind of come alive and, and that this is where I want to be and what I want to study. And I was really fortunate to take a class with her, um, a couple years later. Um, that was, you know, it was great. I mean, that was, that, those were more English classes, like looking at how, um, different images are used in fiction. So it was, it was a different way of looking at writing, but it was. I loved it. Yeah. Now the, the MFA from Bennington, I'm assuming that's something that came quite a bit later. It did. And that came out of when I went back and started, started um, writing stories. And I read a story by Amy Hempel called in the cemetery where Al Jolson was buried. And it's a wonderful story. Uh, It's in her, um, or in her, in her collection, or in her complete collection. I think it's also probably in, in different places online, but it was so interesting to me. And so I looked up Amy Ample. I thought, well, maybe maybe she's teaching somewhere. And she was teaching at Bennington. And it was a low residency program, which worked well because I had a family. I had young kids. And uh, I could I managed to figure out how I could leave for um, you go back to campus twice a year and study there for about two weeks. And then during the time when you're, you know, back at home, you have a really rigorous schedule of reading um, and also, you know, develop like writing pages. And so it was a good practice for me to learn how to just write pages, like just, you know, you had to do 20 or 30 pages a month. And so that was, you just had to like figure out how to do that and keep, and keep um, and keep going. I think Bennington was one of the first that did did these low residency programs. Now with you know all the remote learning, they're pretty common. But I think they weren't they one of the kind of the at the forefront of that. They were for a long time. It was just um, I think the first one is at a school called Warren Wilson, which is in North Carolina, which is also a fantastic program. And then I think there was Bennington, and then there was a third, um, Vermont College of Fine Arts. And those were the early ones, and really, like, those were the ones that that I thought of, and that's not that long ago. And now, you know, there's been um, more programs, which is really giving writers more opportunities. So I think um, that's been... I think it would be really fun as a... I'm, I'm approaching retirement age, and... Um doing something like that as a retirement project, I think would be fun. 
Yes, and there and I have met a lot of writers in going to different conferences over the years where they come back to the same conference. Like um, there's uh, some other ones like Breadloaf, and um, there's another one that Vermont College of Fine Arts offers. And I think it's a really rich place to to be and talk about writing and um, hear lectures and um, it's a it's a great way to just continue learning and be engaged in in books and writing in a different way. While we were talking, I looked up Amy Hempel, and it's interesting because she is her you know Amy Hempel, American short story writer, like that's what she's known for, and. Yes. Um, She's now teaching at the Michener Center for Writers and University of Texas at Austin. She is. And um, there's another fantastic teacher who is the head of the Michener program named Brett Anthony Johnston, who I also was very fortunate to study with. And he has um, a fantastic collection called Corpus Christi of short stories um, and also a novel that is really wonderful. Um, and I think he lured her. <laughs> that's, my, ah. that's my, that's my theory that, that, um, that he lured her to Texas. Yeah. Um, I think there... UT is, is becoming quite a center for creative writers. It, it has been, they've had a wonderful yeah. program for, um, for a long time. It, it is, they have a, they have a really terrific program there. That's very cool. I, I went to the uh, Texas Book Festival a few years ago, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. 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 And there's yeah, a great bookstore was... in Austin, too, called Book People. Of course. But... Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I um, spend about a third of my time in Austin, so I'm Fantastic. quite familiar with Book People. My condo's like less than a mile from, from there. Oh, it's it's great there. That's one of my favorite stores. <laughs> I love independent bookstores. I just find like if I whenever I go to a town, I find the bookstores. My daughter uh, taught me this. We um, she for her 18th birthday, we went to New York and she wanted to go to all the bookstores. And so we took the subway oh. um, up and down and went to all the bookstores. And it was such a it was such a gift to learn how that teaches you about a town and how you are city and it's really um it was it's a uh, now I do that wherever I go I try and go to the bookstore oh, first fantastic. like as soon as I get there well yeah. if, if you ever come to Iowa of course we have a great independent bookstore up in Iowa City Prairie Lights yeah if you've heard of that one I've heard about maybe. it I'm very curious about yeah. it yes yes yeah. yes um yeah I've heard great things well, Kelly, we're about out of time, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, are you working on something new? So I am, and thank you for asking. It's very surprising to me, but about um, <laughs> six months ago, as this book sort of got off on its way to the publisher, I started working on a novel. And <gasps> I know, I can't believe it. And it's been really fun. All the things that I was scared of, of having all that much, all that space and how was I going to, you know, hold it together. I'm actually loving just sort of writing into it and seeing, I mean, I, I don't know where it will end. I know what I'm exploring and writing into, and it's been really uh, a lot of fun. Well, we will look forward to seeing how that comes out or when Thank that comes you. out. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. We always close with a quote, and we were talking a bit about fame today. Um, so I found this from Joni Mitchell. Fame is a series of misunderstandings surrounding a name. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's so fantastic because I feel that that's very much the time of this novel, too, you know, the, that, oh. that time period or that sort of feeling um the novel ha- i mean sorry not the novel <laughs> the collection the, the, of stories the yes book has yeah that i thought that yeah. fit this collection very well so thank so well. you and see you all next week on writer's voices thank you so much